worship you They come to hear the truth Why scroll to wage your time Well, guys, thanks again for watching online. For those in the room, thank you so much. Well, we're going to wrap up our series today, Once Upon a Land. And last week, we started talking about fairy tales. And we talked about how each fairy tale has three elements. Characters, right, whether an evil queen, a charming prince, a beautiful princess, a talking snowman. Right? There's always characters in a fairy tale. And then we also talked about supernatural events, whether it's a magical mirror or a beanstalk that grows up into the sky or whether a place that turn, in the middle of winter goes to snow. And then we also talked about a principle to live by. So a fairy tale has characters, supernatural events, and a principle to live by. And the fourth element that we didn't talk about last week, but I'll talk about this week, is the ending. Every fairy tale has a happy ever after ending. With the caveat that the happy ever ending is for the hero, is for the good. That was interesting. We talked last week how the Bible also has interesting characters, supernatural events, and plenty of principles and commands to live by. And it also, for those who belong to God, who are followers of Jesus, Jesus being the true hero provides us a happy ever after ending. So it's easy why someone might think the Bible is just a fairy tale. And if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, maybe you're struggling with, with this whole faith thing. And I get it. I've been there. My hope for you is that you'll see the main difference between the Bible and fairy tales is that the accounts in the Bible happen in real places. These are true stories that happen in a true location, in a true land. It took place in locations you can actually go and visit. And with fairy tales, you can't do that. Right? You and I cannot go to Cinderella's castle and Disney doesn't count. We, we can't go to the, where the seven doors live. We can't see Rapunzel's tower because those places don't exist. See, the Bible records stories, true stories that took place in actual places and locations that you and I can go and visit. It's truly once upon a land with a rich history. And last week we talked about how Virginia has rich history, how we only have to drive a few miles here in Fredericksburg and then we see a battlefield where blood was spilt. We can walk the same places where soldiers walked and where they fought. And then we can drive a couple of hours and go to the first settlement in Jamestown. So our, our, our history in Virginia is rich it's full of history, and it's a unique place to live. But what makes us different than Palestine is that they're still fighting over that land over there. We're not fighting for the land in Virginia, but they're fighting over there. That land, Palestine, where God gave that land to his people, is still being fought for. 
So you see, my hope is that we have a better understanding of the history of the land, what our future holds for us in that land, and that we would know the owner of the land better. And my hope is that it provides understanding and perspective as we begin to hear news and media reports concerning the land and the people living in the land. And we all know that celebrities and pundits and the media, they've picked their sides. And they've made their perspective the truth. My other hope is that it would make it more real to you. The Bible would come alive for you. Maybe if you're a skeptic and you think this whole thing is a fairy tale, I hope that you would reconsider. At least ask yourself, what if the Bible really does document things that provides answers to this conflict? So last week we started out ask, uh, answering the first question um, that I've been asked since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. The first was, why is there so much conflict in Israel? Today we're going to look at the second question, and that is, as Americans, who do we support, Palestinians or Jews? So before we answer who and how we support, we need to first understand why. Let's get some background and context. According to the Hamas Charter written in 1988, Article 11 states, quote, the land of Palestine is an Islamic endowment consecrated for future Muslim generations until Judgment Day. It or any part of it should not be squandered. It or any part of it should not be given up. Without question, Hamas believes that the land of Palestine is land that belongs to them. They are committed to getting it back from Israel. And the pushback may be, well, not every Muslim believes that because they believe that Hamas is a terrorist organization. And, 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 and that's true, right? Not every Muslim would agree with the Hamas charter because they believe it's an extremist terrorist organization. In fact, the average Muslim in our community is someone committed to their understanding of God or Allah. And Allah is just the Arabic word for God. When they said that they consider their faith a, a peaceful one. So two things could be true at the same time. So it's true that not all Muslims believe the Hamas charter and Hamas is a terrorist organization. Two things could be true at the same time. I don't know about you, but I think it might be wise for us to look at what the holy book for Muslims, the Quran, says. So it actually states in chapter 17 that Jews will return to the land of Israel before the last judgment. Also in chapter 17, Jerusalem was the last place Muhammad visited before he ascended to the heavens and talked to God. Before this night journey, he was transported by a mythical winged creature with Gabriel from Mecca to the farthest mosque overnight to meet Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. And then he becomes the first of those messengers. The furthest mosque is in Jerusalem's old city, where the Dome of the Rock Shrine stands. See, Jerusalem is within the land of Palestine or the boundaries of land that God promised and gave to Abraham. So here's where it becomes very inconsistent. Muslims, even though they call out Hamas and they distance themselves from extremism, they believe that Jerusalem needs to be back under, quote, 
enlightened Islamic rule, which enabled harmonious coexistence between Christians and Jews. However, quickly in the second chapter of the Quran, along with chapters 9 and 47, there's instruction for believers of Allah to fight and kill unbelievers. Specifically in chapter 47, there's a reward promised for those who are fighting and killed in the fight. Even if that's symbolic, even if that's symbolic, the premise is that Muslims cannot coexist with Christians and Jews because we do not believe in the same God. Like we touched on this last week, the Crusades are a huge black eye on the church. And I get that. They started out because of Islamic military attacks for control of Jerusalem. So it was clear back then that the words in chapters 2, 9, and 47 in the Quran were more than symbolic. So Kenneth Woodward, he writes a cover story in Newsweek to show that Christianity and Islam are different when it comes to bloodshed and used the Crusades as a point of reference. This is what he said, quote, The Bible, too, has its stories of violence, but these stories do not have the force of divine command. Moreover, Israeli commandos do not cite the Hebrew prophet Joshua as they go into battle, the way Muslim insurgents readily invoke the example of their prophet Muhammad. And while their crusaders have fought with the cross on their shields, they did not, could not cite the words from Jesus to justify their slaughters. This has been about the land. This is about recapturing Jerusalem and putting it under Islamic rule. Like there's hostility toward nations like America who support Israel. Israel is the nation keeping Jerusalem from being controlled by Islamic law. So some Muslims believe that America's support for Israel moving its capital from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem is declaring war against Allah. So Muslims believe that all people, all humans, are born good, but become corrupted by non-Islamic culture, which is why they want everyone under Islamic or Sharia law. Christians believe the opposite. We believe that all humans are born with the human condition, a sin nature. So the best way, in, in their opinion... To combat corruption is to put all people under Islamic law. And for some, that means it needs to be done by force. By force is exactly how Muhammad spread Islam. See, James White reveals, quote, Whether most Muslims embrace this or even know that it's a historic part of their faith, Islam is, at its heart, a political religion. In fact, it has been said that Islam is the world's only major faith that can truly be defined as political. And while most Muslims would not want to embrace this aspect of their faith, it has been estimated that as many as one million have and the number is growing daily. Samuel Huntington, he, he talks about there's three great civilizations today. They're, they're in operation in the world today. You have the Eastern religion, Asia, so think China before communism. You have Western democracy formed by Judea Christian beliefs, and then you have Islam, 30 countries from Indonesia to Nigeria. 
So Samuel Huntington, as he sees this kind of play down in the 21st century, writes this. The 21st century will be shaped by the clash of those civilizations, and specifically between Islam and the West. If things do not change, Islam will win the day. The reason is simple. Many will pick up the sword to do it, which you would not find in the Eastern religion or Christianity. So as he talks about living in the 21st century and seeing this clash begin to take place, it leaves us thinking, okay, what's next for us? What, what does this look like for us? And we, over the last couple of years, we've talked about um, that we live in the here but not yet. We experience the effects of Jesus' kingdom by being the church and being filled with the Spirit. But it's not fully here because our king isn't here. Here's an example. Like we experience relational healing between us and God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we're able to have our sins forgiven. We're able to be restored in our relationship with God. Okay, through Jesus' death and resurrection. But we also don't have our glorified bodies yet. Right? There's still not peace on this earth. So like we can have peace relationally with each other because of our relationship with God, but we still need nations and nations to be healed. See, we experience relational healing with God, but we have not experienced the physical healing on this earth that comes as he returns to the same place he left, which is Jerusalem. Everything circles back to Jerusalem. Notice what Jesus said on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is the mountain that looks into Jerusalem. I mean, it's within walking distance. Maybe he's on the Mount of Olives with his disciples and they're looking, they're looking at the city. He says, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is carcass, there the vultures will gather. And then he quotes the prophet Isaiah. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. See, Jesus identified himself as the Son of Man, which was another name used for the coming Messiah. He was not only referring to Isaiah, but he also referenced Zechariah, who predicted prior to Jesus' return this, a day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against the nations as he fights on that day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split into two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. 
It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When, at, when evening comes, there will be light, and on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. We know that stuff has not happened yet. It has not happened yet. Now, we've seen evil done to the people of Jerusalem, and we will continue to see evil done to the people of Jerusalem because there is a fight to recapture Jerusalem. And maybe right now we think is en enough is enough. But it's not yet. And when enough is enough, that's when Jesus returns. See, Jerusalem has been the focal point of the world. It will be the focal point of the world during the reign of Jesus, who will be king over the whole earth. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you're able to see from different parts of the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives are thousands of graves because Jews who are buried there believe they would be the first to be resurrected when the Messiah comes. See, after Jesus ascended to heaven, angels explained to the disciples that he would return. So he's on the Mount of Olives, he gives his discourse, he gives the Great Commission, and then he ascends up into heaven. And they say to him, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. You have seen him go into heaven. When Jesus comes, he is coming to make all things right. He brings the fairy tale ending for those who believe in him. And with his return, I don't want you to miss this, we are not made for heaven. We were made to be in his presence. Heaven is not the end game. Being in his presence is the end game. If we pass before his return, we are immediately, as Paul says, absent from the body and present with the Lord. Okay, so where does this leave us? It's important to remember one thing and do one thing. Let's remember, even though America is not the geographical focal point with Jesus' return, the values and direction of our country matter. Like we don't throw away this nation and what it was founded on just because we're not the geographical focal point of prophecy. Where we live matters. Like we live here and we should want our kids to grow up in a culture that it was founded on, a Christianized nation. Like we need to be focusing on protecting our country from as much evil as we can and supporting Israel. It's a both and. To forsake our country while defending another country, even if it's part of a blessing from God, leaves us weakened. It doesn't make us any, it doesn't make us any good to, to defend them and help them if we are weakened ourselves. Like, I, I, hope, like, I don't want us to become a Christian nation. Instead, what if instead of becoming a Christian nation, we become a nation of Christians? Because the heart of the gospel is so unique. It's God doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And yes, we ought to do that for people, but we have to remain strong ourselves. And then this is what we want to do. We want to support both Jews and Palestinians 
suffering under the hand of Hamas. Hamas is a tyrannical, violent, governing force of Gaza who started the war. They're committed to eliminating Israel as a nation and Jews as a people. And remember, not all Israelis are Jews. Gaza is a very poor place to live. Over 50% are living in poverty. Hamas has no desire when they took over in 2007 to run a free society. War-opposed Palestinians living in Gaza are suffering as human shields under Hamas. They are unable to leave. And then Israel declared a just war with Hamas in defense of their people and land. Israel, who desires to be in their land and live in their land that was promised to them by God to live in peace. They want Palestinians to have the same. So they've offered a two-state solution over the years. But in 1978 and in 2000, it was rejected. Israel, on the other hand, provides a free society. And did you know that they provide a place for Palestinians to be protected by Islamic governments? They provide free health care. Guys, it's clear. Look, look, it's clear. It's clear from prophecy that things are going to get worse before they get better with Jesus' return. Yet in the same breath, he hasn't returned because not everyone who will believe in him has believed. Imagine how the message of Jesus has the power to change the minds of Muslims. From 1991 to 2007, Fuller Seminary conducted a survey among 750 Muslims who became followers of Jesus. The survey represented 50 ethnic groups from 30 countries. The number one reason for leaving Islam and following Jesus was his message of grace and love. One comment on the survey revealed that Christians appeared to have loving marriages in which women were treated as equals. With the Quran shaming a God who would take on the sin of humanity because that shows weakness. And they put the focus on having your good outweigh your bad. Muslims shared that they could never be certain of their salvation. And they revealed that they were attracted to God's unconditional love, modeled an example through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So it leaves us two questions to think about. Number one, how does this change your perspective about Islam and those who follow the Quran? And number two, what is one thing that you are looking forward to Jesus's return? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're incredibly thankful for an opportunity to read a little bit of history, but most importantly, hear what Jesus had to say about his return. We look forward to his return. In fact, you modeled for us, Jesus, that we ought to be praying for your return. And so, Father, I do ask that you will prepare our hearts for your return, and the way that you're preparing it is for us to share the gospel with those around us. And even for those who may have come from a different ethnicity, a different nationality, help us to share the greatest news of all time to them. That you did something that we couldn't do for ourselves. That Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died. And he came back from the dead to exchange our spiritual death for spiritual life. That we get to live forever in a restored relationship with you, Father. Father, for those in the room who don't really know what to make of this whole faith thing, I ask that you will soften their heart, 
and they would see Jesus for who he is. The only one that can make them right with you. So Father, help us to be really gracious in our conversations with those who may think differently than us. Help us to be sharp and relevant in how we explain things. But Father, help us to model grace and love. In Jesus' name, amen.